0: Hello I'm Stephen Fry a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so welcome to our podcast This year is the 248th consecutive year that the summer exhibition or as it used to be known as the annual exhibition has been shown loan exhibitions at the academy only started in 1870 so before that the royal academy just put on one exhibition a year which today just seems extraordinary <laughs> but I wanted to go right back and start this uh, lecture in the middle of the 18th century and consider what led to this whole concept of an exhibition or a public show of contemporary art and in fact it all started in Vauxhall Gardens. So in the sort of first quarter of the 18th century Jonathan Tyers took over what was really a very disreputable old garden which was full of purse snatchers, prostitutes, whatever. They all used to gather there. So he took this over and was determined to sort of clean it up. Music was uh, central to the entertainments that happened. So I'm just going to get... See, that, that's uh, where many of the concerts took place. We know, for instance, in 1749, Handel's music for the Royal Fireworks was rehearsed at Vauxhall Gardens. And in fact, so many people came, over 12,000, that the central arch of the newly built London Bridge collapsed, causing a three-hour traffic jam. So bad things happened then as well as today. So once Tyers took over the ownership and management of the gardens, he was determined, as I say, to clear out the kind of low life and replace them. So he was quite keen to have good family entertainment, music. um, And there was this sort of element of a sort of slightly improving Um, element or moral air that he introduced as well. He wanted them to be civilised and enjoyable, even educational evenings out. So what I wanted to point out here is, so again, we see this is where they had music. And if you look here, they had these um, supper boxes. So they were not completely enclosed, but you could sit there and you'd have your supper. And behind many of these boxes, they um, put paintings. In fact, Tyres was advised also by William Hogarth, who was a great promoter of British artists. Living British living artists I should say um, so what is extraordinary I think is that one of these paintings at least um, survive today so this is Francis Heyman He was um, artistic director of the Vauxhall Gardens for more than two decades and he he designed and painted many of these painted decorations for the 50 or more supper boxes. Some of the paintings were extraordinary. They used to lower them down so they'd be sort of up in the roof area and then they'd lower them down so it was all very dramatic and quite theatrical. So these paintings it was you know William Hogarth and Tyres and Heyman considered themes and they were meant to be sort of showing different aspects of British ways of life, rural games or theatre, literature, other traditions and so there were a few battle scenes as well. But many of these paintings carried a sort of concealed or not terribly concealed but a moral message. So this one's called The Seesaw, it's painted about 1742 and I think you, if you look at it you can see so we have, um, it's really about the dangers, this is a sort of moral thing going on here. So we have this woman who's falling off the seesaw into the arms of somebody and here is actually her sort of betrothed who's about to run and have a big fight with him Um, and we see a a ruined sort of tower behind which I think you can guess kind of relates to the fact that if she does completely fall she too will be ruined. And we have scaffolding. So it's quite interesting what they're setting up here. The other thing is, and this is very important in the 18th century, that prints were made after these paintings because it was such a brilliant way of getting these paintings known to a bigger audience and uh, gave some money for the artists as well, or they gained from it. So when this print was um, published, it had a little moral message. It says, where at the top of her adventurous flight, the frolicked damsel tumbles from her height, Though her warm blush bespeaks a present pain, it soon goes off. She falls to rise again. But when the nymph with prudence unprepared by pleasure swayed, forsakes her honour's guard, that slip once made no wisdom can restore, she falls indeed and falls to rise no more. So... (laughs) Um, But what is interesting with these paintings is that that, that artists were keen to be taken seriously and there was a lot of debate at this time about could artists um, talk about taste were they educated enough Um, who should have the final say on taste is it connoisseurs or people that collected the aristocrats or could the painters have a say and there was a lot of satirical (laughs) prints about this time this is a little bit later so here's the, uh, the artist in the crown with a owl above him. But the audience of connoisseurs, you can see, have all got animal heads. So there's a boar who's boring and a dog who's dogged and I think there's a monkey. Monkeys are very often sort of foppish characters. So in a way, it's sort of slightly making fun of of the so-called connoisseurs um, and saying that actually they weren't as knowledgeable as they made out to be and there was no reason why artists shouldn't have that kind of say or or kind of increase their status. Hogarth is also a wonderful artist and he was... (coughs) very, very keen to promote living British artists, or at least living artists that were working in Britain. So in this, um, this is actually a bidder's ticket for an auction of his paintings. What we see here is we've got, there's a cockerel up here. Christopher Cock was an auctioneer, um, a bit like Christie's. So this is his auction house here. And do you see here these stacks of paintings? These are all old master paintings. And he's marked them Ditto because he's just basically saying there were loads of fakes and forgeries or second-rate old master paintings and really they were damaging the whole market for uh, contemporary artists so do you see they're flying up and they're physically so this is one of hogarth's pictures um and here we have part of the um, harlots progress and this is mourning and so you get st francis attacking morning so they're physically damaging living british art um, so I think he was very keen. And again, it's this, all this sort of the groundswell of, of, you know, how do you get living British artists out there? How do you compete with the old masters? So in 1760, um, this new initiative, and it came sort of out of this Vauxhall Garden and Hogarth, was the idea of having a first public exhibition in London. It was put on by the Society of Artists, and much to the artist's delight, it was extremely popular. In fact, it was so crowded that an artist wrote to the society complaining that the rooms were crowded and incommoded by the intrusion of great numbers of whose station and education make them no proper judges of painting and sculpture and who were made idle and tumultuous by the opportunity of a show. So we get this quite a lot. It's kind of, you put on this new exhibition and people want to run along, but there was this, the artist kind of wanted to control it a little bit. So the following year, the society who charged sixpence for entry doubled the price, which was quite a lot then, to one shilling, um, to try and keep everyone out. But the exhibition was still a great success and seen by over 20,000 people um, and 6,000 catalogues were sold. According to Horace Walpole, the rage to see exhibitions is so great, sometimes one cannot pass through the streets. These are just interesting because these are frontis and tails piece to the 1761 catalogue, and yet again Hogarth got in there with a bit of propaganda. So what's in? Oops, sorry. What's interesting here is that he's got actually put George III there as sort of patron, although he wasn't officially patron of the Society of Artists. But here we have Britannia under George III's watchful eye watering the garden um, or the trees which is painting architecture and sculpture you could just see written and then we have here in contrast a foppish monty, Um watering these plants so do you see they say obit so they died in 1502 or 1600 and basically again is sort of getting at old master paintings to see look they're dead they've gone they're not flourishing. Um, so he uses as much as possible propaganda, and that's actually in the catalogue. And then also this is another element that comes in. So this is the genius of painting here, and he has got again architecture, the palette for painting and sculpture, and is relieving distressed artists. So this is another argument that artists use. They said we must put this exhibition and we will help support distressed artists from the proceeds. So for me, it's interesting, the Academy took on all these purposes when it was founded. Um, So in 1768, it was founded in December. It did continue a sort of charitable element, and it did put on um, an exhibition in the summer, um, which it took. So the other societies sort of faded away because the Royal Academy was particularly successful because it did have the patronage of George III, What's interesting also, we talk about them as a summer exhibition and again it reflected because the Vauxhall Gardens were only open in the summer, the society exhibitions were in the summer and it was partly to do with light, that you could naturally light the galleries uh, without having artificial light Um, and also there was a sort of summer season so many people who lived outside London came into London for the summer season and and the, the influence of that continues today I think. So this is just a wonderful portrait bust we have of George III. Um, And really, this was the difference, and I think it's one of the reasons probably the Academy still continues today, because securing that patronage came with very many benefits. Um, He did, for the first 12 years, underwrite... The Royal Academy, so he supported um, he made up the financial f- shortfall and also provided accommodation. so the first home of the Academy is quite interesting. it relates partly to this man who is uh, Richard Dalton. The royal purse basically paid for rooms for the new academy, which was in the south side of Pall Mall, facing what is now the Royal Opera Arcade. Um, it was identified as a place that could have both the schools, because the Academy had schools, free schools, and also could put on an exhibition. Um, and there were very few places in London that was. was it was possible to do that. Now, this building that they had was developed by Richard Dalton, who was an eminent engraver, an antiquarian uh, member of the king's privy council. But his influence is an interesting character, that he was a royal or British agent in Rome and Naples and Venice, and he literally obtained hundreds of works which came into the um, possession of the king at this time, often with slightly dodgy dealings, and, and many other clients. So basically he was out there in Italy getting work for all the clients back in England. Um, his status was confirmed in 1760 when he became George III's librarian, a position which uh, reflected more his influence and his suitability. Horace Mann let Walpole know that Dalton was ill qualified for the post of librarian, being totally illiterate so I think (laughs) but anyway what's interesting another slightly dodgy deal that Dalton had developed um, Palman as a place to show his own prints and as a sort of print warehouse but I suspect that it wasn't going very well and he really wanted to he'd spent a lot of money creating this big room big exhibition room and he wanted very keen for the academy to have the room so that the royal purse would pay for it Um, And in fact, again, this slightly dodgy dealing. This is uh, George Michael Moser, who was the first keeper of the Royal Academy Schools. And he and Dalton, basically, this is St. Martin's Lane Academy. They took all the possessions of St. Martin's Lane Academy and just moved them into Pall Mall because they thought then the Academy would follow. So yet again, slightly dodgy. But anyway, it worked. So the first exhibition... Oh, so this is the outside of Pall Mall. So can you just see at the top there's this clear story, which is really interesting. So that's the Great Exhibition Room, as it was known at that time. And then there's this rather sort of Venetian-type windows. They made fully... When they put the exhibition on, I think the academicians always had an eye for publicity. Um, So the first exhibition was 1769, because they were founded in December, and so it was the following year. They just had a couple of weeks to arrange it, and they just had a period from April to May when they showed the exhibition. It was quite short to begin with. But what's interesting is that they, for the king's birthday, they... they mounted decorations on the outside of this building. And I should say that there, there were shops on the lower level, but on the upper level here, they mounted these um, decorations to celebrate the King's birthday. So they said the first ones um, were transparent paintings and lamps of various colors. Those haven't survived, but this is um, a drawing from a later one of 1771 by Cipriani. Again, you can see there's, um, I think this is painting and sculpture and architecture and then royal portraits up here so just literally for, for sort of the night of the the king's birthday they put these on the outside and probably it didn't harm it gave a bit more publicity to their exhibition but sadly this was the last one because these illuminations on his majesty's birth night were damaged by a mob throwing squibs which set fire to part of it this endangered the palace which occasioned the discontinuation of these elegant shows but anyway, it's quite interesting. So, not only with the building, that they were trying to kind of enliven it, so people really knew that the Academy was there. So, this is, if you notice here, the, um, this clear story here, which is the records are quite interesting. It had different types of glass from the sort of like the south side where you got more, or west where you got more light than the other side. So, it really was quite thought out how the light would fall into the exhibition. So, this is the great exhibition um, in 1771. We know, but you can't really see much of it, that the walls were hung with green bays or green felt, and it's quite interesting. I don't know if you've eaten in the Keeper's Restaurant, but that is hung with green felt as well. Um, the only uh, sort of architectural feature, apart from the clear story, was a good uh, wooden cornice about the height of the door, um, which was really the origin of the famous line. People talk about being hung on the line. Um, and it was... Uh, So you can see, even at this time, there's quite a clear line that that comes through in the way that they um, hang the works. We know there was a smaller exhibition room, which had windows, but they were regulated by paper blinds on two sides. So they were very concerned about how the exhibition looked. Um, There were 11 exhibitions held at this venue. We can see in the center back, this is a picture by James Barry, um, The Temptation of Adam, but also it's very interesting. It tells us from this early time how the pictures were hung, which is kind of like a jigsaw, really. You can also see that actually the frames were not enormous. They were quite often in quite simple frames. Often what happened, um, if a, a portrait, say one of these portraits was sold, that the, the person who bought it or commissioned it would then commission their own frame for it and so you get these very elaborate frames in the 18th century sometimes with you know their royal crest on top of it or whatever but in the exhibition they tried to keep the frames relatively simple because you could get more work in basically what's interesting here is because the number of works the first exhibition in 69 had 136 works but by this date they'd increased to 276 and if you look actually this is a temporary wall so they've actually divided the Great Exhibition Room in two to get more work. The catalogues were given, and you can see here again, it was entry by Schilling. shilling. Uh, this gentleman's looking at his catalogue. Um, in this print, Richard Elnum depicts not only the pictures, but the viewing public. So in the left corner, we have two identified um, people here that would have been known at the time, Chevalier Manini and Dr. Robert Bragg, a dealer in art and antiquities, and they're shown sort of discussing, look at some picture we can't see. Um, But other figures um, appear to sort of contrast this slightly higher tone of discussing the pictures and looking at the catalogue. So you get this man who's got an eyeglass, because obviously a lot of the pictures are quite high Um, hung quite high but actually he just seemed to be looking at this woman who's looking through the fan at this picture Um, and this one here I think there's an old lady that's reading to her charge who's fallen asleep these seem to be two children kissing so it's quite interesting there is that slightly unregulated uh, behaviour that is going on there. Um, I'll just show you quickly this is the James Barry picture and although uh, reviewers complimented Barry on his work. They were somewhat shocked by the nudity. One reviewer commented, though, that Barry's recent travels were the problem. An insufficiency of drapery apparently being a fault common to most painters immediately after the tour of Europe on account of the difference in climate. (laughs) What's interesting also at about this time is there was a tightening up of the rules about... Because it was an open exhibition, uh, members of the Academy could show their work, but otherwise other people could send in their works to be shown. But they said in 1770, the council decreed that no needlework, artificial flowers, cut paper, shell work, or any such baubles should be admitted into the exhibition. So I think what's interesting there is that in the first years, they were just taking anything, and the Society of Artists, we know there were things like a picture made out of human hair or you know, shell pictures, but they were becoming more confident and wanted to make it a much more elevated uh, place for people to show their work. So it should be very much about paintings so and none of these sort of slightly on the edges and, and certainly didn't want sort of amateur paintings. They wanted it to be professional artists. So in 1780, the Academy moved its exhibition into a far grander uh, building, which is Somerset House, where the Courtauld Institute is now. Um, and really, there were pretty much purpose-built rooms for them. Again, given by uh, the King, or that they allowed um, were allowed to move into these rooms. So you can see, in comparison with the Pall Mall, it, you know, they really had gone up a notch there. Um, so this is one of the early. This is. Uh, Pietro Martini's engraving of the exhibition of 1787. So I can think you can see it has really gone up quite a notch. You see here, um, sorry, the um, it's a Greek quotation which is, let no stranger to the muses enter. And that was actually over one of the doors. But again, so they were sort of setting themselves up with quite a high sort of moral ground there. We see here, this is um, Reynolds who's taking around. George, well who became George IV the Prince Regent, the Prince of Wales at this time and is pointing out the exhibition. Again we see dogs, dogs seem to appear quite often in these, (laughs) they seem to be allowed in. Um, So there's a sort of Tumultuous crowd, really. We've got people on benches trying to see what's going on. Um, some looking very closely at these are little miniatures that are hung here. But I mean, it is, really is quite a spectacle. So we talked about the line. So do you see here? It's running very clearly. It's about eight foot off the ground, and it was like a, a cornice. So when you were um, so this hung on the line, it meant that these larger works could actually sit. So some of their weight would be taken on that. And then you can see that they were, it was leaned inwards. This helped with reflection. It also just helped to actually view the works of art. Um, so you can see the smaller works were actually hung; they were used the cornice, but hung below it. But any of the large works were actually what they're called hung on the line, and it was quite a good position because you could be seen above the sort of heads of people. They got increasingly popular. The examiner reported that there was nothing but rouge cheeks, which catch the attention everywhere. So everyone was flocking to see these exhibitions, and and certainly to see the inside of these this magnificent new building. The audience went up from about sixty thousand in 1780, the first exhibition they had here, to over 90,000 in 1822. It's interesting, because the Academy um, took up residence in Somerset House, and and there was a certain amount of public money that had paid for this building. So again, there was that thing about, well, why are you charging, you know, a a sort of double charge in a way for people to come into the exhibitions? Um, In response, Reynolds, in one of his discourses he gave to the students, reiterated the public and civilising aims of the Academy, um, and he said, at present the, at the present the exhibition is part of the institution of an academy supported by royal munificence. The public may naturally expect the liberty of being admitted without any expense." The academicians therefore think it necessary to declare that this was very much their desire, but they've not been able to suggest any means other than receiving money for admittance to prevent the room from being filled by improper persons to the entire exclusion of those for whom the exhibition is apparently intended. So in a way Rails had no qualms about saying, they wanted a sort of um, a sort of highbrow audience. They obviously wanted uh, people with money that might commission artists or buy pictures from the exhibition. And so it was, a, in a way, quite a deliberate policy to try and exclude some of what they refer to as sort of lower orders. In fact, the, the charge, I mean, it, it was not absolutely enormous. It doesn't seem to have dampened the public's enthusiasm. Samuel Johnson reports on the 1783 exhibition that on Monday, if I'm told truth, were received at the door 190 pounds for the admission of 3,800 spectators. Supposing the show opened for ten hours, the spectators staying one with another each an hour, the rooms never had fewer than three hundred and eighty jostling each other. So it was quite a phenomenon at the time that these exhibitions were um, so popular. And one should also take into account that the sort of women's clothing at that time took up even more room than they would now. And you can see here that the number of works in the exhibition would. Increasing dramatically, so I think there were over a, a thousand by 1797. There was no limit set to how many pictures could be submitted by an individual. And in fact, some like Reynolds sometimes showed up to twelve paintings in an exhibition or more. This is a little drawing that we have in the collection that shows really does show how these um, exhibitions were absolutely crammed in in a way. This sort of rather casual, um, but this, so this is an absolutely what was in the exhibition at that time. And, and I think the arranging of the exhibition must have taken so long because you had to get all these pictures to fit into every single nook and cranny around the building. Um, and this is I think so fascinating. Um, this is by Francis Burney and shows how symmetrical the hangs often were. So here we've got um, the Prince of Wales, but if you see that not only portraits, they're kind of mirror imaging. So you get this one here looking to the left and this one looking to the right. Um, and again, the sizes of portraits and landscapes and two battle scenes. So incredibly symmetrical, often, that the hangs. Um, what's also, it, in some ways, was easier. There were basically four sizes of pictures. There so were full lengths. Half lengths, and then Kit Kat, which was a very typical sort of portrait um, size, probably something like um, one of sorry I keep using, something like this, and then next to it was the other size, which I've forgotten what it was called, which was a sort of um, quarter size. But so that did help; it was made it much easier that frames and canvases were just made to these four sizes. Um, i was just going to show you this is the this is the picture that was in the centre of that that hang. But again, if we look back, that the, again, there's fairly simple frames. They'd not got to that Victorian where they had huge frames. They were still kept the frames quite um, small. What's interesting about this is from the microcosm of London. So the Rowlandson did this drawing, which was then made into um, an engraving, an act etching of the, again, the, the exhibition. But in the microcosm, so it was almost like one of the things that you did. So the other one, was the Royal Exchange where people used to go and see, they kept animals. So it's kind of one of the sites of London. Um, and again, you can see very clearly, it's not actually an actual exhibition, it's sort of made up, but the whole way it was hung and lit again from the clear story up the top um, is, is easy to see. Um, some of the microcosms are sort of looking at, slightly making fun of the people that come and look, the sort of incredibly different scales of figures and um, benches and people sitting to rest and some looking and some looking at each other. This is Thomas Rowlandson. This is the, um, the Royal Account or the Exhibition Staircase. It's deliberately misspelt. <laughs> Um, so it shows, it shows. I don't know if you know the staircase that goes up to the court old galleries. It's, it's, it's a real sort of winding staircase. Um, and we see here in a, a, the niche is a Venus here. Um, so Roland depicts, depicts, sorry, depicts the statue of Venus who stares at the spectacle on the stairs while also making a spectacle of herself, presenting her ample posterior to of them as they go up and down the stairs. Many of the press noted that the stairs is a place where females vied for male attention. The Morning Post in 1785 said there are two descriptions of persons who visit the Royal Academy. Some perambulate the room to view the heads, i.e. the portraits. Others remain at the bottom of the stairs to contemplate the legs, i.e. to look at uh, the ladies walking up and down. Um, There was at one point, there was an idea of hanging, because they were so short of space, hanging paintings on the staircase. Um, But as one journalist commented, the fair amateurs, which with ankles turned, not less delicate than those of the Venus de Medici, may be mortified at the eyes of the visitors being drawn to the walls instead of to themselves. So it was sort of rather recognized that they rather like promenading up and down the staircase. this print is in contrast to the early ones in treating the exhibition as a sort of form of low entertainment in place of the fashionable, well-behaved public. It shows a sort of chaotic mass of exposed bodies with no elevated thoughts on their mind whatsoever, I think. Um, the arguments that the general public would be elevated by their visit to an exhibition was somewhat tested in 1781 when the son of an aristocrat, the Honourable Edward Onslow, um, son of the first Earl of Onslow, whilst in the public rooms of the exhibition it was reported that after talking with two or three beautiful young women, started to make insistent sexual advances to a gentleman by the name of Felix McCarthy. He was not encouraging and McCarthy responded with angry shouts and a slap across Onslow's face. Though the press, through the press, this quickly became common knowledge, and although Onslow tried to retrieve his reputation, he eventually had to flee the country. But this whole episode, in fact, recalled instances of scandalous behaviour which happened at Vauxhall Gardens, so that for all its trappings of civilization and grandeur, it perhaps hadn't moved quite as far from the pleasure gardens as the Royal Academy liked to think it had. <laughs> um, this is just quite an interesting one. This is a crookshank. Um, a shilling well laid out so I think um, this is 1821 as we get into the 19th century there's still that whole idea that going to the exhibition is um, an educational visit and in this case you know the shilling for the entrance free is is a good way to spend the time and and here you can see that people are they're very well dressed it up coming to this exhibition and they talk about how it's a treat to come to the exhibition. Um, it doesn't matter if you don't know that much about the art. There might be other art lovers that would get a lot from um, you know, learning about art or seeing the progress of some artists. But for many people, just coming and seeing the art was a treat. It was, um, you know, you might learn something. So this is quite interesting, the, the sort of changes that go on during the early 19th century. So the arrangement of the exhibition was by president and council of the Royal Academy. There were eight elected members in council and first a selection was made of submitted paintings so that anybody could send into that, Um, although work by academicians did not undergo the selection procedure. Mm But once selected, there was then a hanging committee, usually a group of three members of council at this period, that then arranged the exhibition. They did consider special requests from exhibitors, usually at the beginning of April, but the whole exhibition had to be hung, ready for the opening on the first Monday in May. And the first Monday in May is actually the opening of the London season. So this is a portrait or a set of portraits by Thomas Gainsborough of the Royal Family in 1782. Um, some artists were quite demanding of the Hanging Committee. This it was actually exhibited in 83 and was quite poignant as um, these the princes, um, Alfred and Octavius, had actually died by the time the picture was put on to show. Um, so you can see it's a very particular, each, although these in, individual frames are hung together. So um, the hanging of the picture greatly concerned Gainsborough, and he wrote to the committee asking them not to hang it above the line with the other full lengths. And furthermore, if that happened, he never more, while he breathes, will send another picture to the exhibition. In fact, in case they didn't understand what he meant, he then sent them a picture and said, this is in the archives, going, that's how you must hang it. And he didn't want it high up, he wanted it hanging on the line so it was below it. Um, In this case, the um, hanging committee did do what he asked for. Um, So the following year, Gainsborough was at it again, and was in touch with the hanging committee. And he said that, um, sorry, this was a full length originally, but they cut it down so it would fit over a doorway at some point, I'm afraid. (laughs) So this shows the um, three eldest princesses. So this time, Gainsborough wrote and requested this portrait be hung at a height of no more than five and a half feet from the floor. At this time, the Academy refused to do it because it would interfere with the arrangement using the line um, because it was about eight feet, so it wouldn't have fitted. So Gainsborough, at that point, withdrew all 18 of his pictures from the show and never exhibited again. (laughs) Um, Another thing that happened in 1809 was once the exhibition was hung, um, it was in a new regulation, eighty nine which um, was introduced, so that previously members once, or even during it was being hung, kept popping in just to touch up their paintings um, and basically annoying the hanging committee a lot. So they said that they would be allowed, these, they set aside three and sometimes five days where members could come in and touch up their paintings. Um, in May... So this is just a rather wonderful um, William Parrott showing Turner um, working on his painting in 1846. But early than this, in 1832, there was a famous incident where Constable, he'd worked on this painting for nearly a decade, and the whole point was to really show off what he could do to the general public. It was a six-foot painting. So as I say, Constable had, had struggled with this painting for about a decade. Um, It was hung in the exhibition, and it was hung alongside Turner's latest seascape, a picture of Dutch ships in a gale, which was quite a muted work by the artist. As we can see, Constable's painting glitters with speckled sunshine um, and many touches of red and and this great sort of uh, sky ahead. So what Turner did, and this is the painting, which it has slightly faded, I think, but this rather muted picture, he came along with a red brush, and he painted this boy bright red therefore uh, so poor constable writes he has been here and fired a gun because i think it then suddenly this new bright blob of red paint and all eyes went to turner's painting not constable's so i think the varnishing day could be um, somewhat uh, difficult for some artists um, turner was well known at, towards the end of sending in very unfinished pictures and seeming to sort of work them up at the last minute so i think um, so this is a rather nice, this is Varnishing Day in 1877. Um, and you can see the problems of varnishing when your work's actually been hung. <laughs> so, so, and you can see quite, the, uh, quite a lot of professional women artists there as well. And I just I like this picture. This is 34, so this is Sir John Lavery. I mean, I think there's an element of sort of public display here because you kind of wonder at this stage whether they really needed to touch up their paintings or they just liked going in there and up the ladders and and just having another go at their works. The Academy had to move from Somerset House as the government wanted that building back, went to the east wing of the National Gallery... Um, in 1837, and um, before it moved to this building. So, even though it was sort of fairly purpose built, the Academy found it quite difficult having the schools there and showing exhibitions. And this is quite interesting this work. This shows the uh, new sculpture room, the Royal Academy, which opened in 1861. And if you see at the back, um, it was lit by windows, not a clear story, because actually the sculptors decided they didn't like their sculptures lit from above, they wanted it lit like that and I found I could not find a good picture but what is really interesting this is the back of the Royal Academy and if you see here the back of that gallery used to have windows so that was a sculpture gallery if you go into the octagon you remember that the sort of first room you go to the gallery behind that used to have these big windows Um, because that's where the sculpture was shown. But actually, they covered them up in 1880. I'm not quite sure why. I think it's maybe because the Academy had a lot of loan exhibitions then. So maybe it was quite difficult to hang that gallery always with sculptures. But anyway, it is quite interesting that there was a big bank of windows originally there. So then... Uh, in The first exhibition was um, 1869, um, 100 years after their first exhibition, and that was actually in Burlington House, where we are today. And this is um, the early The Great Room um, at the Royal Academy. This is also, again, the, the sculpture where you can see the actual windows open at the back. Mm-hmm. So again, the Academy had sort of fallen on its feet by um, getting Burlington House and compared the difficulties they had at um, the National Gallery. And actually, if you look in the galleries, quite often we sometimes use these benches, which I suspect were made for the galleries. They're still going strong today in 1869. <laughs> so this is a picture in the collection of, of uh, Charles West Cope showing the selection procedure um, at the time. So this is Millet, this is Francis Grant, this is the beautiful Lord Leighton here. So you can see, um, they used to get in, but there are many of the art handlers or they used to call them. They were sort of, I can't remember what they called them, but any workmen were Italian. They used to come over and help with the exhibition. So what they'd help here, they're they're bringing the uh, pictures for the academicians to decide whether they want to keep them. Um, in the back, you see the man handling the Victorian period. They did get huge some of the pictures, and I think some of them are drinking in the background. You see this man has got a chalk in his hand. So what they used to do is the selection committee. They would either be accepted in a. Doubtful D, which meant they stayed in the galleries and they might be hung, and then X was rejected so in the background you can see this is the secretary and he's recording ones that are accepted or, or whatever the status is. Um, I think this one says virtue rewarded, so he's recording that. and I love these, these big um, wooden sort of like ladders, but they could hang in these enormous paintings against them. Um, so anyway, so this is the, the selection committee. And these are just some quite fun engravings from the 1880s showing there was a lift that until a few weeks ago, used the same lift, used to bring the works up into the galleries. Um, so they'd be then seen by the selection. The ones that were D or A would remain in the galleries, the rest would go down. And this is just quite fun. It shows that the difficulties on a handsome cab of bringing your picture um, or the the work to move these sculptures because at that period everything came into the galleries how big it, ever big it was um, and this is this is not the approved way of moving sculptures actually these days <laughs> um, or else the academicians trying to sort through the enormous to get a closer look because once they'd selected the works they were all around the gallery and they had to then make I mean it's it's quite a feat to try and make sense of it all. So, of course, the private views were very important. This is Frith's um, private view. So we see um, this is the artist here, and again, Lord Leighton. Frith painted this uh, in 1881, and it exactly shows how the exhibition was hung in this year. He painted it, actually, slightly to make fun of Oscar Wilde, who's here, um, and the ascetic movement. The ascetic movement in the sort of... um, 1870s and 80s, art for art's sake. You can see these are, these three, this little group of three And these, their, their dress is very different, it's much more natural. She's wearing a sunflower as a brooch in comparison with these more corseted, layered dresses. Um, so it was partly, but I think what people really loved about this painting, all they could recognize all the different people in it. This is the Jersey Lily or Lily who was having an affair with the Prince of Wales. Uh, this is Millet again. Um, But we've got Trollope, I think, here. Um, But just a whole cast of characters. But again, that importance of the private view and to to get famous people in, and again, to make it a place that people wanted to come and see the pictures. By this um, period, there were... um, There were about nearly 400,000 people came to see the exhibition once it opened, which was an average, I worked out, of about 5,000 a day. So Frith was delighted. When this picture was shown, it became kind of referred to as a picture of the year, or it was so popular and everyone wanted to get up really close that they had to put a barrier around it. And they even employed policemen to stand in front of some of the pictures because people got closer and closer trying to see them. The pictures at this period weren't glazed. The artists used to complain they wanted to put glass in them. But I think the sheer weight of these large works with glass in was such that the um, Royal Academy kept saying, no, you can't glaze the works. In London at that time, if you think there were a lot of um, fires and gas fires, they were very dirty. So artists knew this and quite often wanted to glaze their pictures. And often Victorian frames are quite big and chunky because they're holding big sheets of plate glass but anyway in the exhibitions they weren't so they used to have this barrier and a policeman Um, the idea that it wasn't official the picture of the year I mean Fritz himself was delighted because this is another of his pictures of the year which is the Ramsgate Sands Um, bought by the Queen. So there was a great excitement about that. And again, a policeman and a barrier, which uh, Frith was delighted. Uh, This is just another example. This is a wonderful Herbert James Gunn, Pauline in a yellow dress. So there was often one picture in the exhibition that that everyone was talking about. Um, This is in the Harris Museum. And rather amazingly, I read in the newspaper, the actual dress has just been acquired by the museum. So if you look on their website, you can see this actual dress as well as the um, portrait. Another whole conversation about the Summer Exhibition, the sort of satirical prints that appeared after the exhibition. So this is uh, Sargent's portrait on the right that was shown in the exhibition um, and has quite an extreme uh, perspective. An accompanying article comments, our artist has shown how admirably John Singer Sargent has depicted Mrs. Carl Mayer and her children, quite the portrait picture of the year, on a sliding scale, a sort of drawing room tobogganing exercise... Mm -hmm. And so you can see here that rather that the the woman is sort of holding on to these children that appear to be sliding down the hill. So I think um, a lot of the press had great fun with some of the pictures and and picking up various uh, slightly less satirical side to these things. As we move into the 20th century, uh, what's interesting being quite a high-profile exhibition, it came to the notice of the suffragettes. And in fact, on... May, the 4th of May, 1914, the day the exhibition opened, the suffragette Mary Wood, um, attacked John Singer Sargent's portrait of the author Henry James, breaking through the glass, they were allowed glass at that stage, and slashing the canvas three times with a meat cleaver. In fact, at that time, I mean, there was the suffragettes were causing quite a lot of damage so that the round sort of public spaces, um, the Academy in 1912 had closed the winter exhibition early because they were worried about something happened. Anyway, there was all... all a sort of great furore. One man tried to, I think the crowd rather turned on this woman, um, and a man tried to support her, and he was knocked and his glasses crushed. The woman, there's a report in the press that, that Mary Woods slashed the portrait with a cry of votes for women, um, but many of the women in the exhibition turned on her with cries of lynch her, turn her out. Um, what's interesting is she was asked why she particularly chose this picture. Um, and she wrote, I've tried to destroy a valuable picture because I wish to show the public that they have no security for their property nor for their art treasures until women are given political freedom. It was uh, repaired and is now in the National Portrait Gallery. Exhibition continued through the first and Second World Wars. I narrowly missed being destroyed, but this was in September, so it had just closed. This was damaged in uh, 1917, and there's a little small tablet inserted in the doorway of Gallery 9 that records this fact. so it was quite bad damage that went right down through to the basements. In Oh, I was showing you this one, because in uh, this is 1934, but shortly after this, uh, Laura Knight, who's standing here, was elected the first uh, female academician to be elected. There were two... Founder members, Angelica Kaufman and Mary Moser, but uh, Laura Knight was the first full member to be elected. And this rather wonderful picture of uh, Lamorna Birch and his family here. This is a, just a wonderful portrait. This is Laura Knight much later um, in the galleries with Dodd Proctor and a rather wonderful um, snake skin I think, handbag there, but again it shows the sort of sociability of artists once they're elected um, and they'd be coming into the gallery, this is probably um, might as well have been one of the varnishing days where they perhaps didn't feel the need to varnish but they could have a good old chat instead this is another (laughs) which continues today (laughs) this is they get given beef tea which sounds absolutely disgusting anyway I think it's got some sort of cherry in it as well anyway fortified beef tea and they the academicians still get offered that today i'm not quite sure how many of them drink it <laughs> there were various controversies certainly in, the, in the, this is 1935 that the hanging committee so the selection the, these paintings wouldn't have gone into selection committee but the hanging committee decided they didn't want to hang these two works by stanley spencer they rejected both pictures and spencer resigned from the academy in protest um, the rejection of the St. Francis picture was particularly galling for Spencer as the model of the figure of St. Francis had been his own father wearing his own dressing gown and slippers. Spencer offered his resignation and rather sadly wrote, it is unlikely I shall ever paint any differently from what I do now. So please accept my resignation and let it be done as quietly as possible. In fact, I think that's not quite true, so I think Spencer did go to the press about it. Um, anyway, he did rejoin the Academy in the 1950s. And then I just had a couple of that. I think this is a wonderful photograph. This is the equivalent um, of the coat picture where this is one um, a lady recording all the, exhi- uh, the pictures that they come into the exhibition. And because you have to, once you've recorded the pictures, you've got to make the catalog as quickly as you can. And this again was showing in the 50s, showing them coming up in much the same way, the lift. And this is the gallery. So this is a rather wonderful picture of the 50s. So I think a hat was de rigueur at that time. So I just wanted to really finish today, this was last year's, Michael Craig Martin, his take on the exhibition. And I think, I hope, if you look at this with our eyes on the history, you know, some things haven't really changed that much. There's that sort of jigsaw of paintings. And although the sort of colours change and different things change about it, it still is an extraordinary open exhibition yes sometimes we have invited artists we have a sort of theme running through it but behind all of that is the fact it's an open exhibition that anybody can submit their work to and it's amazing 248 years without break I don't know will it go on for another 240 years I'm not sure so thank you very much <laughs>